this is a highly political process. So anything you can do to change it into a data informed process is extremely helpful. Um, and if you don't do that, then you're going to end up with some really bad choices um, mm -hmm. that reflect, you know, the, the power of the constituencies in your university, not uh, what the market needs and not what's going to ultimately lead to the long term health of an institution, particularly these days where you really can't take enrollment for granted. Everyone and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. I am delighted to have as my guest for this episode someone who is a highly innovative thinker and who has worked with higher education institutions all over the country on programmatic growth and new market strategies, among other things. Robert Gray Atkins is the founder and CEO of the higher ed strategic consulting group known as Gray associates. Bob clearly has his finger on the pulse on something that all colleges and universities need to be paying more attention to, strategic and data-informed academic program portfolio management. Bob is the author of a terrific new book, Start, Stop, or Grow, a data-informed approach to program evaluation and management. We will include his bio in the show notes, but for now, Bob, welcome back to the Ingenious You community. Thank you very much, Melissa. I appreciate you having me. So for those who are not familiar with Gray Associates, let's just dive right in and maybe you can tell us who are you, who is Gray Associates, and what makes your firm different from the other higher ed strategy firms that are out there? Sure. Well, we are a massive firm now. We have 40 people. Um, as you mentioned, we work all in all sectors of higher education across the United States, from tiny trade schools, uh, rural community colleges, on up to tier one research institutions, both public and private. So um, that's been a, a wonderful journey getting to that point. Uh, we've been doing this for about 10 years. Uh, what makes us unique? Um, first, I think it's just a belief that we have that program decisions may be an obscure kind of topic, um, yeah, certainly to the general public, but they're vitally important. They determine which colleges and universities will grow and who's gonna decline. They determine whether our students will graduate with the skills and intellectual abilities we need to enable our growth or not. And last but not least, they determine how our culture and values are gonna get passed down from generation to generation, which of course is part of you know, engaging a new political war around higher ed, but I'm gonna pass that by for a moment. Um, so to support that, we offer the best available data, software, and facilitated processes to help higher education institutions decide which programs to start, stop, or grow. That's us in a nutshell. We call this a program evaluation system. And importantly, the system isn't just the software. Um, it's, it's the data that's included and the process you have to run in order to make sound program decisions. Um, and we think that combination of data, software, and facilitated process is pretty unique. Um, we've got firms who do data, primarily labor market data, We've got others who do consulting, but some of them actually use our data. Um, others paste it together themselves with, in our experience, not very happy results in terms of the accuracy and completeness of their data. But in any case, nobody does all of those things together. And that's really what makes us unique. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I agree uh, about your uniqueness. I've 
full, full disclosure, I've been a client uh, of Gray Associates. I've used your data for a long time, and I, I don't know of anybody else out there who's doing exactly what you're doing. Um, and so, uh, and your book, congratulations on the new book. As I mentioned, the title, Start, Stop, or Grow, great book title. Um, the introduction to the book describes your approach to academic program evaluation and management as new and exciting. And so I know from previous conversations I've had with you that um, your approach was developed uh, in response to your belief that the traditional approach uh, to academic program evaluation is uh, not working very well. So can you, can you just walk us through a little bit about what's wrong with the traditional approach uh, and What's new and exciting about the way you approach uh, academic program evaluation and management? Let's start with a little bit, let's probe into this premise that something's wrong. Um, and I think the evidence is pretty clear. Students aren't coming to college. Enrollment's down. And by the way, it's down, especially in community colleges, which in many ways ought to be a hotbed right now. We need those skills. Uh, we don't necessarily all need a four-year education, but we almost all need to have two years to teach us a particular trade or to get our skills, perhaps it should have been developed in high school, around um, basic literacy and numeracy uh, up to a level that's really useful in the workplace. But they're declining fastest of all. And I think part of the problem is that we're not picking the programs and emphasizing the programs that people really want. Uh, there's been historically a little bit uh, too much emphasis. So let me go through what's wrong with the process. Um, first, let's be clear that you know, pinning down the traditional approach is a tricky question, right? I mean, it's a pretty slippery and amorphous thing. Um, at its worst, powerful stakeholders and their opinions drive program decisions. So we end up with these, what I think of as stillborn programs. They're, they're launched and nobody cares. Um, by the way, they're often not really launched either because the program launch process is not so great. So there'll be a new program and no dedicated marketing to promote that program. And funnily enough, if a tree falls in the forest, in this case, actually nobody knows. Um, and that's not helpful. That's a side topic, really. Uh, the influencers tend to be primarily faculty, but it can be a board member who's very vocal about a given program. You know, my daughter majored in such and such, so we should have it here. Um, presidents influential local employers, and uh, perhaps the most uh, tragic group to get involved in this are politicians. Um, and they're starting to make their voices heard around cutting programs like philosophy. And we've all heard Marco Rubio say, you know, we need uh, fewer philosophers and more welders. By the way, the data don't support that. We actually need more philosophers than we need welders and they make twice as much money. But other than that, he was right. Um, these stakeholders' ideas are then taken through a lengthy faculty review process that unfortunately is largely qualitative and perceived to be highly political, in part, I think, because it is. Um, and that approval process took 12 to 18 months. Well, if you think about today's markets, an opportunity can come and go in 18 months. Certainly, you know, Southern New Hampshire University, uh, Grand Canyon, and Western governors are going to get there in less time than that. So you're going to be coming into the market after some big players are already there. If it's an attractive new opportunity. A great example is data science. And they're on top of that three to five years ago. We started recommending it to our clients six, seven years ago, I think at this point, 
Um, and, but many schools are just very, very slow to react. And so there's still a good opportunity there, but the best of the opportunity is already passed. Um, so what we do is bring together all the, all the data you need. It's timely, it's up to date, um, and you, you don't spend months just collecting it. Uh, and then we get all the people into a room and we run a workshop. And in two days, we use that information to inform their decisions about what programs to start, stop, or grow. So we take 18 months, and to be fair, we take two months to get ready, and in two days we run a workshop. Um, and you've got really the fundamental answers. You're still gonna run it through the faculty, but typically that's a much quicker process since they're involved in the workshops and on board before that review process starts. So we get better results. We don't trigger campus revolts because people are involved. <laughs> um, and uh, we do it much, much faster. So that's really what makes us different. So is it fair to say the traditional approach, just to shortcut this, is uh, too long, is typically not data informed, uh, not often market responsive and uh, subject to the personal whims of uh, all kinds of constituents. A great example on this is cutting programs. Um, yeah. And this really gets a lot of heat. Um, created on campus. Uh, there are people, you know, board members who think small programs should be cut just because they come from a business environment where small things tend to be unprofitable. Um, there are politicians who complain, oh, why are we running this program that only has four people in it? Well, when you actually run the numbers, it turns out that most small programs are actually profitable. So, you know, a contribution positive. Um, so if that's the case, when you cut them, uh, you actually end up worse off than you started. And so there's a little bit of, you know, just a lack of knowledge of, of how the economics of higher ed even work um, that, yeah. that, you know, tends to make the kind of shoot from the hip decisions even more dangerous than normal. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. And it, it's one of the great things about your book. I mean, your book cuts through a lot of the myths that are out there and uh, deserves to be read by, you know, wide ranging groups of groups of constituents. And that's a great segue for my next question, because one of the premises of your approach is that there are indeed certain things that academic leaders need to know when deciding whether to start, stop, or grow a particular program. So uh, can you describe uh, what, what you had in mind uh, sure. in, this, in this regard? Well, there are four broad topics, markets, margins, academic performance, and mission. So we think a process needs to be mission-centered, uh, market-responsive, margin-aware, and finally, academically sound. Um, so you got it's a, it's a pretty tricky little process there if you think about it. Uh, there's some controversial parts of that. You know, why should we care about markets? Well, markets drive margins. Well, we're not for-profit. Why should we care about margins? Well, margins fund mission. Um, no margin, no mission is uh, one of my colleagues, Bill Massey, likes to say. Um, and so you need a mix of programs that generate margin to fund the ones that are mission critical that don't generate margin. The goal here isn't to make money per se, it's to be able to allocate uh, the rents you earn in certain programs to other areas of the academic portfolio or the institution that need that funding. So, and of course, the academics are not to be overlooked. And one of the things we package in academics is diversity, equity, inclusion. Because oddly enough, your program portfolio affects that as well. Some programs attract certain types of students. Other programs attract other students. Um, 
simplest example is you know nursing versus engineering. Nursing skews 90% female and fairly diverse actually. Uh, engineering skews not quite 90%, probably 80% male, uh, white and Asian. And you know, so if you depending on what programs you offer, you're going to end up with a more or less diverse campus as well. Boy, that's a great point. And you know, that's never something that's on the radar. I don't think when people are talking about program um, program development ideas. So that's a really um, important thing to keep in mind. And a very uh, long-term consequence. Yeah. Right? Once yeah. underway, you've, you've set the stage for five to 10 years of demographic change in your campus. So um, it's a really important component. It's actually one of the things we'll be adding to our scorecard in the next few months. Let me go back to those four buckets that you identified, the primary buckets that make up your approach that really in, encapsulate all the, the key questions and the data metrics that academic leaders need to have on their radar. And I'm gonna ask you to unpack each of these and give us some examples of what the key questions are that should be asked. What are the specific kinds of data that uh, people should be um, looking, looking at, looking for? So starting with mission. Yeah, that's probably the fluffiest of the concepts, but maybe the most important. Um, and this is one of the reasons, we'll come to this in a second, why we call it data informed, not data driven. I haven't come up with an algorithm yet that can really tell you whether a program aligns with the mission, but I guarantee you somebody will, and probably within the next five years. Um, so, you know, but for now, you, you do need judgment. Um, we humans have not yet been replaced. Uh, and what you're looking for are things, well, it can be obvious. If I'm a religious school, there are programs, for example, uh, ministry that where you know that we're not gonna have a lot of students in them, you know it's not gonna make money and you know that they're not gonna be great and highly remunerative jobs on the other side. That doesn't mean you shouldn't offer it. If you're an evangelical Christian school as an example, it's central to your mission. So that's an easy example. If I'm a tech school, um, do I you know, how much emphasis do I wanna give the humanities? Well, maybe less. On the other hand, if I'm a liberal arts college, I may not want to be, I may or may not want to have an engineering program. Um, there are logic for why you might, but uh, you know, it, it's clearly a different purpose and a, and a different person you're going to attract. Um, so, you know, you, it's, it's very much qualitative, but it's kind of, you know, obvious when you look at it, what fits and what doesn't. Though it's often not very well documented. So one of the things we've started to do is actually add that a section to what we call our program dashboard where the faculty go in and describe how a program is related to the mission or not. If you're looking at five program possibilities is, so are you suggesting one of the questions to ask is, you know, to what extent might this program uh, support uh, the mission or is aligned with the mission or is that, yeah. is that what and you're I think suggesting? you can say, let's think about the break. If we were to deconstruct the mission a little bit, does it attract the kind of student we want, um, you know, that's consistent with the mission? Um, so, for example, if you're very concerned about social privilege, um, you, you want to have a, a program that's going to attract students um, who are Pell Grant status, you know, um, very heavily. So that that would be a, a criterion. Um, second, is it teaching the kind of things that we care about as an institution that are central to our mission? Um, so what's the content? Um, and uh, it may become something too, where you think about how it's being, you know, the medium, um, because there are institutions where their mission is to be online and omnipresent. Well, 
some programs do that well and some programs don't do it at all. Uh, you know, right. a pre-licensure nursing program, it's going to be really hard um, to get through some of that stuff if you can't, you know, touch a mannequin or uh, be involved in a clinical um, exercise. Doesn't the mission, having that focus on mission as a starting point, doesn't that also help uh, keep you from trying to run in too many directions all at the same time? You can almost always rationalize something be aligned, being aligned with the mission if you really want to. Um, it may be kind of obvious to an outsider, but um, I think where you get into and where the real rub with offering too many things is resources. So to me, that's where you bridge over into the more numeric things. Do students want it? Okay, yeah. obvious question, but most program analytics do very little on it. Um, you know, people look at iPads, which is five to seven years out of date. I mean, people, the most current data is 2021, right? It just came out. And people made their decision about what program to enroll in. If you're a community college, two or three years before that, so 2018, if you're a, a four-year institution, it could be all the way back to 2015 when they made that choice. So, you know, you need more current data than that. Um, and you need to pay attention to student demand. I'm going to be a little harsh here. I think one of the problems that community colleges had and why their enrollment's down so much is they focused almost exclusively on employer needs. Mm. Well, if you ignore students long enough, they're going to ignore you too. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a, a very concrete thing you can bring in. Um, to sort of say, well, if there's no demand for this, let's not spend money on it. And by the way, that yeah. applies to the employer demand too. Let's not deliberately put students in the programs where there are no jobs or where our tuition level is incompatible with the pay that people are going to get. You know, I think of the issue that happened in, in California recently with a private where they offered a, a program in social work at, you know, as a master's program, but at 60 or $80,000 a year. To people who are going to graduate and make forty thousand dollars a year as social workers, that's just not fair, or right? You know, somebody should have smelled that out and said, "If we're going to offer that, we got to offer it at a price that they can afford to repay." Um, so, you know, I think that kind of quantitative work is where you really yeah. can start to uh, cut back on uh, the eclectic ideas. Yeah. So you're into the second bucket now, and that's the markets. So yeah. tell us, uh, walk us through some more questions. You know, what are what are the questions that uh, academic leaders need to be asking as they're looking at the market uh, in regard to possible new programs? So do students want it? Is the interest in the program growing or shrinking? And then what data do I have to support that? So let's focus, the first two are obvious. The, the, the data though is really important. Um, and we've been continuously changing our data sets, I hope improving them. Um, in order to get as good data as possible on that. So one great source is Google. Um, it's a little tricky, but you can go in and get uh, data from Google about whether people want this program, whether it's trending up or down. Very important to have comparators um, because usually the raw numbers don't mean anything to me at least. You know, There are a thousand Google searches for this program in Toledo. I don't know if that's a lot or a little for program searches in Toledo. So you have to do some things um, to compare that either to programs you offer or to all other programs, which is what we do, but you know, not very many people are gonna keep track of 1400 programs. So that's one piece. Uh, then you've got to look at what's happening right now in terms of enrollment. Um, and that is data that's also available. And you, know, you can get it by program um, and you can get it three times a year. So it's pretty current. Uh, unfortunately, they won't tell you which institutions uh, those people are coming from. So for that, you need iPads, which is, as I mentioned, out of date as a source, but still the only way you can see both 
volume and competition and geography. And so, so the Google search, is that something anybody can do or? Yeah. Um, okay. What you do is you go into Google trends yeah. Um, and Google Trends will tell you, you know, what the trend is for an individual program, but it does it on an index. So it starts at 100 is the highest amount in, during the period it's looking at. No, I'm sorry. It's a starting value in the period it's looking at. And then it goes up and down from there. Well, the problem is that doesn't tell you how many searches there were. Um, so what you have to do is take a program that you know, where you know how many searches there are or look up one, do the homework in Google AdWords to find out how many searches there are for a given set of keywords. Um, then take that second program and, and model it too. And, and then you can know that if the first program is starts off twice as high as the second one that you did yourself, then you yeah. know the, the volume is twice as much. So it's a bit of a trick, yeah. but it's accessible. It's hard to do in volume, uh, because Google won't let you automate it. So even though uh, you may have somebody who can write the Python code to, you know, go just repeat it, it will throw you off uh, in, almost instantly if you try to do that. So you got to... Well, and again, again, that speaks to the value of your service because you do all this. You incorporate yeah. all these data, these data streams into the and algorithm. you have to update that, it. That's the other problem. Yeah. It's like, well, I yeah. thought when we built this stuff that it was really cool that we built it and that sort of the big cost <laughs> was over. Oh, God. Nope. Then you have to maintain it. <laughs> Um, and that's really time consuming and expensive. So, yeah. Um, what, what about the third bucket academic standards? What, what kind of questions, uh, need to be kept in mind there or data? Yeah. Well, um, it's funny. A lot of the stuff isn't kept by program. That's a lot of it's kept at the course level. Um, so part of the trick when you're doing any of this is to go and grab all the courses students take who are involved in a given program. So nurses take English by rule. They have to. Well, that means we got to go get some results out of the English courses uh, to, you know, roll up into the nursing program. Um, so that's one of the tricks. Things we look at are the faculty full-time or part-time, you know, adjuncts. And what is that mix? And is it appropriate for this area? Some areas that require very current technical skills, you may want a good dose of, of adjuncts or actually practitioners in the field. Um, but others, you know, you really probably want your full-time more skilled faculty teaching. Uh, you want to look at um, the student credit hours that are rolling through the program and whether those are going up or down, because that's going to dictate the need for faculty. Student enrolled is important. The degree to which students are increasing or decreasing the number of course credit hours they're taking. Are they stretching a program out? Um, and that again, that'll hit your student credit hours and you, you need to adjust your, your faculty for that. Um, DFW rates, uh, grade of DF or withdraw. Uh, important metric, whether we're teaching the course at the level students can absorb it. Um, and there are many ways to deal with that if it's not working. Uh, one of the easiest is to lengthen the course. And people often don't think of this, but you know, what, something that people can't get through in three months, maybe they can get through it in six months. You know, for most people, a little bit of extra time can make a huge difference. That's one way to deal with it. Um, so DFW rates, and uh, the other thing we look at is make sure you've got a tabs on diversity. So, you know, one of the things you want is to be able to filter and look at each group and see how they're performing against those academic standards. Are they, you know, getting Ds, Fs, and Ws? And that's a problem um, where they are being successful in the program. So that's a lens that we, we put on it as well. Yeah, and again, those are all things that are important to uh, track and oftentimes are not tracked as a part of this process. And so the fourth bucket is margins. 
So tell us uh, what what the questions are, what are the data that you need mm -hmm. to be looking at in terms of the margins bucket? Well, the first thing, as I mentioned with the um, academic stuff is uh, most of this is normally reported in departments. Um, so when you look at it by program, you've got to, again, move that English uh, revenue cost and margin over into the nursing program um, and count it there for the nurses that took English. So that's the first thing is, what are we looking at here? Are we, are we looking at the nursing department or are we looking at the nursing program? Those are different numbers. By the way, neither one is wrong. Um, use, we tend to use departmental economics when we're looking at cost reduction, um, but for program decisions, you obviously need to know program economics because if you decide to cut program A, it's actually gonna affect all kinds of courses and other departments within the institution. Then you need to take this all the way down to the student level. Um, individual students, what did they take? How much tuition did they pay? Um, what kind of discounts did they get? And you know, then roll that up into the major um, that they're in. And faculty is very similar. You need to take the faculty members, what were their wages and benefits? Which individual courses did they teach? And then we got to allocate the credit, the um, cost to the credit hours taught. A couple of fun things you find in the process. One is uh, release time. So faculty don't just teach. Um, so before you allocate cost to courses, you actually have to take out the costs that weren't spent on courses. And one of the fun things that you find is just how big that pot is of release time. Um, and often it's much more substantial than people realize. And part of what happens is people go, oh, okay, I got to pay attention and I've got too much release time and I've got to get faculty back in the classroom teaching which by the way is a win for everybody, especially students. Um, and the second thing you find is there's teaching time, there's release time, and then there's time and nobody knows what's happening. Um, <laughs> and that's usually a couple million bucks. Um, so, you know, going in there and finding out what's going on, you know, people probably doing good things. It may just be not being accounted for, um, but really understanding what that is and getting it either into the release time or back into the classroom is very helpful. You have the experience. You've completed most of the coursework in a doctoral program, but you have not completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation, status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way from your dedicated faculty advisor to your small dissertation seminar group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started.
So you have described program evaluation as a team sport. So tell us a little bit more about what you mean, what you mean by this. Sure. And let's start with what I don't mean. Um, you know, I think we've all read in the papers, or I hope not too many of us experienced, you know, the, the top-down decisions about what programs to offer. Um, generally met with something between uh, hostility and, out, and rage. Um, it, it's very disruptive to the campus, especially if there are cuts involved. Um, and, you know, you can really set the whole process back by months or years. So while you often that's done in order to speed things up, I think in practice, it slows things down. Um, so the team sport part of this is first, you got to have the data because, you know, a team with no field is not much help. Um, and so then you've got to bring the administrators in and the people you need to have in there, certainly the provost, sometimes the president, depends really on the size of the institution, um, admissions and marketing, the people are actually, you know, in touch with students on an ongoing basis. And uh, we often recommend that you bring in the folks who are doing uh, the uh, student services and placement on the, uh, you know, so they understand which, where people can really get jobs. Yep, the career, um, so the career planning people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Career services is the right term. I, I can never remember it for some reason. Um, so, and maybe the student services are actually supporting students in school, although that tends to be a more hit or miss. Then you get um, the, the faculty side of the equation. And generally speaking, you can end up in a meeting with probably 60, 40 faculty, 60% faculty and 40% administration. There you need your deans. Um, you need some senior faculty members, chairs typically um, in the room uh, from all the, in, the schools or colleges within the university. Um, and, uh, you know, as far down as the size of the meeting will permit. Uh, generally speaking, we cap the meeting at probably 40 to 50 people um, because after that it gets kind of unmanageable. Um, and so there's going to be some stakeholder management before and after uh, that allows the, the rest of the faculty in particular um, to understand what's happened and have a voice. Um, so that's, we bring that together in a workshop where, you know, they, those folks sit together and talk to each other and reach agreement using the data about what programs to start, stop, or grow. And this forestalls all kinds of subsequent problems. Uh, I said stop. Sometimes people ask us to do that. Sometimes they don't. But when we do, the groups are able to reach conclusion without a lot of um, heat. You know, the heat to light ratio changes. And we've done this at, gosh, hundreds of institutions now. And I pray to God this stays true. But you've really almost never read about us. If you really, really, you know, go out there, you can find a couple of articles. Um, but none of the major campus explosions have taken place, even though all told, gosh, we've probably cut I don't know, at least hundreds, maybe a thousand programs. Now I should say a lot of those turn out not even to be exist. Uh, we were at a school recently where there were all these programs in the catalog. There are actually no students in the programs and no one's teaching any courses. So really what we're doing is just scrubbing the catalog. Um, and I'm not particularly proud of being able to help with cuts, but if that's something you have to do, you need to do it in a way that doesn't completely disrupt the campus and actually set off something that's going to make enrollment worse. Um, and you know, that's, terribly important, you just end up in a tailspin. Let me ask you to, to step back here and uh, share your, your high point lessons learned. If you think about all the projects you've completed, hundreds, right, over the years, mm -hmm. what are some common nuggets of wisdom that stand out? So for example, earlier you mentioned this myth that's out there that you know 
cutting uh, small programs uh, is not always a good thing to do. Are there some other things like that that you could share? Um, Overdependence on labor data. Um, mis you know, mistaking labor data for a program evaluation system, uh, not okay. helpful. Um, you know, you can have programs with lots of jobs um, and nobody's interested in taking them. I mean, we've had more um, engineering jobs than we've had engineers for what, 50 years now? Um, so you can't assume that, that if they're jobs, there will be student interest. Um, they're related, but they're not directly related and they're often out of sync. Um, oh. So, you know, I think uh, other things, um, this is a highly political process. So anything you can do to change it into a data informed process is extremely helpful. Um, and if you don't do that, then you're gonna end up with some really bad choices um, mm -hmm. that reflect, you know, the, the power of the constituencies in your university, not uh, what the market needs and not what's gonna ultimately lead to the long-term health of an institution, particularly these days where you really can't take enrollment for granted it really isn't enough to make the right program decisions. Um, unfortunately, they have to be implemented. Um, and implementation is another team sport. So, you know, if the faculty are busy building a program uh, and marketing is not paying attention uh, and admissions is not paying attention, the program gets built and there's really nothing there to support it. Um, so I think that's been a big gap for a lot of people. And they, you know, these, the, those organizations tend to work in parallel and with new program launch, it's terribly important that they work together. And it's actually a service we offer because, you know, we clients are sort of saying, can you help us do this? And we're surprised to find it. The people who should be involved often just aren't until right. very late in the game. So, uh, by the way, that's not unique to higher ed. Uh, I mean, if I had one problem with Gray, we, we think up this stuff, we build it, and then we look <laughs> up and go, hey, would somebody please sell this? And, you know, we lose three months. Um, so that's true in higher ed as well. It's probably true in almost every industry, but making that a team sport is super important. Yeah. Um, another thing, this is probably because it's outside of our area, but, um, I think we need a real rethink in marketing higher ed, um, mm -hmm. starting at almost an industry collaborative, you know, kind of the got milk, uh, level of everybody cooperating and putting money into something, the amount of misinformation about the value of a college education cannot be underestimated. Uh, it is still true that the average college graduate makes $25,000 more a year than somebody who doesn't go to college. Now that varies enormously from institution to institution, but it's still a hell of a big number. And average college debt is $35,000, which is a lot, but you know, it's, if, you, if I gave people a choice and said, you gotta pay me $35,000, then I'm gonna give you $25,000 a year for the rest of your life, um, that's a pretty good deal. So, you know, it's not that colleges don't need to work on, on finding a way to be more cost effective, but certainly it, the deal is not nearly as bad as people are cracking it up to be. Um, and we're very ineffective at communicating. Um, so somehow we have to get that back out there. Um, I think we need programmatic marketing. Uh, you know, people don't just choose brand names. They want to go to, into a nursing program. They want a program as an auto tech. They don't search for brands when they do that. They search for auto tech programs or they search for you know, nursing certification programs or they, they search for data science programs. Um, if most of my clients don't market against those search words, which makes them invisible 
to applicants. They literally will not be seen. Um, so I think there's a huge gap there. And I think we need to get people out of the colleges into high schools, talking to people about what a college education is and what the careers are that you really can get um, if you do this and what those are like uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. The funny thing we did, I was in a conference recently of, uh, in the Midwest of private and independent colleges. And they said somebody had surveyed um, high school students and asked them you know, what careers they knew about. The average student got between five and seven. Um, police, fire, um, teacher, you know, all the things that they touched, you know, with their, in their daily lives. Sure, um, yep. Which is, let's just say, a small fragment of the jobs that are really out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so if we can't get the message out about, you know, kind of why you need a college education and what, what, what you can do with it, um, I think we've really got a problem. Uh, not just yeah. for colleges, where enrollment's often going down, but again, for our country. We just have a little bit of time left. And I, I know you've always got some great thoughts in mind in terms of trends and movements that are happening. So I want to do a quick round robin with you and ask you for a quick top of mind response on uh, a few trends. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first one the shift toward career-focused training versus liberal arts and sciences. Now, I know you're an old history, not an old, you're a history a history guy. <laughs> hey, you know, so, if you study history, old isn't such a bad thing. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the liberal arts, but this isn't an either or, it's an and. Um, yeah. We need people who have uh, good, solid training in specific fields. We also need people who have the kind of general, um, uh, ed, you know, perception, the ability to make, to adapt to change very easily and um, to use critical thinking to understand problems. And oftentimes though, I think we're gonna, these days, liberal arts is gonna need to lead to a graduate degree, not in the discipline. So sadly, history majors end up studying law. Um, but I think there are some programs out there that I'm starting to see where it's six or nine months of sort of business boot camp. It's not a full MBA. Yeah. Um, yep. But, you know, in nine months, you learn the words, you know, you learn how to remind yourself how to do numbers and so forth. So you can go and and be usefully employed, but still have the kind of general conceptual skills you expect to get um, in a liberal arts education. So, you know, that's I, I, as I say, I think it's and uh, we need yep. more data scientists. We really do. Uh, personally, yep. I think natural language processing is going to be one of the more exciting areas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Particularly. Uh, the generative side. I don't know if you've seen these things, but the art that's being created by people um, communicating with computers that are using AI is really stunning. And one just won a contest out west. It's it is. It's very and it's exciting. You know, if I were starting out from scratch as a young person today, I would look at that that area. It's it's very very exciting. And, and it's a fascinating combination of liberal arts skills and Indeed. and and technique. Um, yep. And I suspect at the end of the, day, the technical part is the lesser part. You yeah. know, the question that about the painting that recently got an award was, well, what did he say to the machine? Because there are other people out there who made art and they didn't win a prize, um, right. you know, using the same technique. So um, I think that's going to be a fascinating area for um, us to get into and one that we're actually working on as we speak. Yeah, um, well, it's a, it's a great example of, of exactly what you're saying, that it's not one or the other, but the future is going to require require both. So you know, I what about the use paragraphs of my book into GPT-3, OpenAI, yeah. I think it's called, um, yeah. and it wrote dialogue that I couldn't tell from my own stuff. 
It was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so there's yeah. a lot there that I don't think is going to eliminate us, but it gives a whole new form of creativity. So let me go to the second one. Use of OPMs to launch and deliver online programs. Are you a fan or not? I think on balance, I am a fan. I think ultimately it's going to be decided by regulators. Um, there's a movement afoot okay. to consider OPMs for profits. Oh, by the way, they are. Um, and you know, at the same time, uh, the financials of a number of colleges and universities are being held together by OPM programs that are big and growing um, and are spinning off 50% of their revenue into the institution. So, yeah. you know, that I, one of my clients is the only thing that's growing. Um, and without it, I don't know where they'd be. Um, and yeah. I don't think the state wants to give them any more money. So it's an interesting challenge, um, but I think the OPMs for most colleges are doing them a service um, yeah. and generating a lot of money that they really need. Yeah, so probably not going away anytime soon. Uh, the regulators um, could kill them. Uh, it's possible. What, We've done dumb things like that before. What about the use of course sharing consortia to stretch the curricula? I love that. Um, you know, if you look at what really drives costs, and I said, you know, cutting programs doesn't. Well, courses do drive costs. Mm -hmm. And under-enrolled courses are really a problem from a cost perspective. So if you can take the course that's got three, five, six students in it and share that and get to 18 or 20, um, you really change the economics of the institution very substantially. You also give small colleges the ability to have a big course portfolio. Um, yeah. So that normal trade-off, I'm gonna to go to a small college, I'm not gonna have the choices, uh, starts to go away. But most important, um, it, it is a path for, especially I think your smaller liberal arts colleges, but a lot of other people face the same problem. Uh, the ability to uh, get to cut back on the number of under-enrolled sections that they're teaching. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And for small colleges in particular to expand what they can offer to students so students can have the best of both worlds at a small right. college. So, right. okay, what about certificates and micro-credentials? Love it. Um, we need them. Very different audience, different purpose than a degree. Um, mm -hmm. That's sort of, uh, it's like the fast food of almost of education, you know. I need a burger now. I'm on the highway. You know, yeah, I'd like to go to a three-star <laughs> restaurant, but you know, I also want to get back in my car and drive, you know, and get to wherever I'm going. So uh, I think that's where they fit. Um, they're also really nice as a complement to a normal undergraduate program, for example, to be able to demonstrate to employers that I've got a specific skill. So the, you know, adding certificates to a normal, uh, you know, program, for example, and typically computer science is one. So that you can see that, you know, I've got my Microsoft cert certificate, you know, I know how to do some form of AI, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, those can be very helpful to students in their job search. And they don't really displace what we're teaching. They're just, they're a little bit like um, the tests you give a nurse, you know, an industry standard test to, to demonstrate you right. have a competency um, yeah. for disciplines that aren't in healthcare and others where there is such a test. Any other trends? Any other trend that you're really excited about on your radar? Um, well, what gets me excited these days is AI and natural yeah. language processing. I just think we're, yeah. we're really just at the tip of the iceberg on this stuff. And it's going to help all sorts of things on campus, potentially. Um, we can already have it at a place like ASU, AI-supported tutoring. Right. So a lot of the basic questions can be answered by a machine. Uh, it, it, from a student's perspective, it may not even be possible to tell it's machine. Uh, the language is that good. Um, but it's also there at 12 o'clock at night. 
uh, when a lot of people are actually doing their homework. I know I didn't really start my homework until 10 at night. So, and if you're a working parent, you have a good reason for that. I didn't, um, but so it's available. Uh, one of the things I think would be really exciting. I wish we could do it. I don't think we'll be able to, um, but I think the mental health crisis that we have in, you know, across the country, but especially in colleges, I think there could be a very high quality tier one psych support done entirely with AI. Um, and I think, you know, it, it needs to know how to escalate really fast to a human where that's appropriate, but we don't have enough people to do the work. Um, and some of what needs to be done is relatively straightforward from an AI perspective. You know, yeah, cognitive right. behavioral therapy has a, yeah. has a reasonably standard repertoire of questions and issues that it deals yeah. with, and it's very effective. We could teach a computer to do a lot of that. The minute yeah. you make a noise about self-harm, we probably need to get you to a person. Yeah, um, the triaging. You'd have yeah, to figure out the triaging. A bad day, yeah. right? And somebody can get you and reframe that bad day and say, what's, what's wrong? You know, well, it's raining. Yeah. You know, well, um, there are all kinds of good things about rain. Like, for example, um, my lawn wouldn't be dark, it would brown right now. Um, so, you know, you can reframe these things. And that part of it is, again, it's not a major psychological issue, um, but it can help somebody who's, on, you know, in a, what do they call it, dysthemic. You know, they're, yeah. they're just below normal for depression um, yeah. and, you know, help get them kind of back on track. My last question, what didn't I ask you, Bob, that's important for listeners to know about the work you're doing or anything you want to share as a last word? Well, you know, I think part of it is this is an advancing art, okay? Uh, there's nothing that we're doing that's standing still. Uh, our clients are not standing still. So we're constantly reaching out to find new metrics that matter because a client says, well, you know, you haven't considered this. And it's, oh, actually, that's right. We haven't considered that. So let's go find the data and incorporate that. I mentioned AI. I think um, we now have the ability to predict the size of a program, a new program at an institution with reasonable accuracy. So we can tell you if it's gonna be small, medium or large with 90 plus percent accuracy. And what's really cool about that is it doesn't give the same answer on what the good programs are to different to every institution. So we're doing it, you know, if, if you're in a, a, a technical, more technically oriented school, give you one set of answers, we recently did it for an art school, and lo and behold, it actually predicted the arts programs would be bigger at that school. It didn't just tell them, you know, go do nursing and engineering. So I found that really exciting. Um, and I think we're going to be able to take the numbers that we provide. You mentioned uh, when we were chatting before the call, it's a little daunting. But we could wrap text around that, I think, pretty soon um, and actually give you a text report based on our numbers. Now, we could never sit down and write that for every program you have. Uh, it would be cost prohibitive, but a machine can. Um, and a lot of what you need to know, the machine can understand. So we're working on that. Um, and I think that'll be uh, really cool. Uh, we mentioned- you're, you're talking about a, a machine that could work like Siri, right? So I'm a provost and I can say, give me the top 10 programs that we should be looking at for my institution. Is that, that's what you're talking well, about? Well, it's actually, that's a, that's a second thing. Um, okay. So the first thing is I give you right now, we give clients a page of numbers on yeah. employment and student demand and competition and so forth. And you have to really study that page to understand what it's telling you. Well, we can write up 50, 100, 300 of those, and the computer will read them and learn how to write about that program and describe what it is you're looking at in all those numbers. 
So the history majors like me can actually get text that explains why this is a good or a bad program, what the issues are. Um, and we can't afford to write that text by hand. So the alternative is just not to provide it. Um, but I think we could get to the point, probably in the next 12 to 18 months, where we can give people a text uh, description of the numbers that they can read and understand. Now, that leads to the second question, which is, I've got, we can now give everybody a, a seat on our system. Well, given the, the amount of data we provide, um, it's unlikely that many people are going to actually understand what they got. But they may not have to. Um, and this is the, the point you were raising. We now have the ability to have someone write an English question, a, a question in English, I guess is the right way to say it. And the computer will figure out what that is and give them the data back that they want. Um, and actually, it gives you uh, four or five different visualizations for that data and a table and the ability to go in and say, well, I didn't quite like it. Can you adjust it this way? And it'll, it'll change it for you. So um, yeah. that I think is really exciting. You know, it's all about the democratization of the data. So yeah. Yeah. more people can I use love it that. in their decisions. I want to be one of your first to test pilot that, okay? We'll get you on. <laughs> we can have okay. you on it tomorrow. Um, so. All right. Well, never a dull moment. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you, to find out what's going on with you and your work. And you're doing such important, compelling work. And uh, on behalf of Higher Ed, thank you for that. And thank you for your time and for being with us today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P where you will find information about our monthly free leading edge thinking and higher education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening.